0: Which is welcome in Lithuanian. Lithuanian. Welcome, everybody, to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the host and the creator of the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. Every once in a while, I have to give you this little bit of information. I do my welcomes to the podcast in a different foreign language every episode. So, randomly, today was Lithuanian. So, welcome to all of you people, whether you are from Lithuania or from America. Today, I'm very excited to have this episode out. Uh, This is part of my conversation with Matt Thorne, an author and critic from England. Matt was very gracious when I reached out to him via Twitter after locating him and having a couple back and forth discussions with him on there. Basically because I was looking for somebody to finally have a conversation and an episode to talk about Prince. And Matt is a dad, and one of the books that he authored is available through Amazon, which is called Prince, The Man and His Music which is a book that is straight up my alley, and we'll talk about that book in this episode. And I just wanted to let you know, I am doing this a little bit backwards with the releasing of the two Matt Thorne episodes. His Daddy episode will come out second, and this episode, which I refer to as my Fork in the Road episodes, will be first because it is... Being released closer to the anniversary of Prince's death. This intro has been recorded a couple of times, and I'm recording this section on April 22nd, the day after the anniversary of Prince's death. Matt and I both talked about when I would be releasing this episode, and I wanted to obviously record it and kind of have it available around the time of the anniversary of Prince's death, but we both agreed that it just wasn't really in great taste it didn't feel fantastic to us for me to be releasing it during that week or on the day especially so I've held on to it a little bit and wanted to kind of not really put a weird taste in anybody's mouth or in our own Uh, regarding the releasing of this episode, but I am very happy to finally be releasing it to you the week after as I am speaking all of this right now in Minneapolis. The Prince uh, celebration is going on, and it's been an interesting week. I will just say that. Uh, Friday, if you know me personally, you know that I was fully decked out in all purple, including my skivvies, and uh, sorry if that's too much information for some of you. But uh, I listened to Prince all day long. My apologies to Josh, who shares an office with me. But it, it was an okay day. It wasn't terribly rough. It got a lot rougher towards the night. And I talk about some of that stuff here in this episode with Matt about the impact that Prince had on my life in my youth and still has. I mean, he was a very large as silly as it seems because he was somebody i didn't know and he was somebody famous but he had a very big impact on me when i was 11 12 13 you know through my teenage years through my very very formative years and you know if you if you really had the ultimate pleasure of knowing me during junior high you may have even experienced me doing a full concert at my friend uh, Mike LaRoki It was his girlfriend's birthday and we were at his house in his backyard and somehow whispers got out that I knew every Prince move and could do a full concert to the Purple Rain tape. And she wanted to see it so bad for her birthday. This was my first time meeting her. And sure enough, there in front of A bunch of my seventh grade friends and people I'd never met before and some parents, I did a full Prince performance of the Purple Rain soundtrack. So I'm sure pretty embarrassing, but uh, pretty awesome as well. And some people watched the entire thing. So yes, I am very proud of my purple Prince heritage in my past and I was very excited to uh, share a lot of that in this conversation with Matt. So without further ado, let's get right to the episode with myself and Matt Thorne and our conversation mostly about Prince. Well, we are here today with a very special uh, broadcast broadcast. So you got me all into radio now. (laughs) Uh, Episode for the Daddy Unscripted podcast. I am joined today from across the pond. And I'm, I'm really hoping that I don't make the very kind of blatant, cliched, American... Uh, jumping into a British accent while I'm talking with you today, Matt.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll try not to go mid-Atlantic or or, or full Atlantic as well.
0: If you do that, it'll probably be way more entertaining than me (laughs) doing a British accent. Oh, I don't know. So we are here today with Matt Thorne, who is a novelist and critic from England. And what part of England are you from again? Just outside London?
1: Well, I live in London, um, but I'm from from Bristol originally, uh, which is in the West Country
0: okay and his uh you'll be able to find him on his twitter under eight minutes idol which is the name of one of your novels correct
1: yeah and it's also a movie uh it was made into a film as well
0: oh fantastic and we can find that easily or
1: yeah yeah i think it's i mean it's on amazon uh it was on netflix for a while i don't know if it still is um but they're both available via amazon i think
0: cool uh, well I know what I'm doing tonight then <laughs> and you have written a number of children like three children's books
1: yeah yeah I wrote, I've written six novels for adults and three three books for cho- three novels for children
0: that's sounds perfect because children are about half the size of an adult <laughs>
1: <so.
0: laughs> ratioed that out perfectly
1: <laughs> well I wrote it took, they 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 happen a lot quicker the uh, i wrote the three children's books in in about 6 months whereas the novels take me between anywhere between uh i think about a year was the, the shortest but usually about 18 months
0: and one of the books which is sitting on my nightstand currently is your prince book which goes by different titles in the UK and the US
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it, and also there's a bit of confusion about that as well, because when I was working on the book, when I uh, initially wrote, started writing it about, gosh, it's probably about 10 years ago now, the, the first version, it was referred to in the proposal as Prince the Celebration. And uh, during the seven years I was writing the book, I wanted, I thought it'd be braver to sort of drop that. And there were quite a few, I mean, Prince used the word celebration himself a lot, Um and it sort of felt appropriate, but it also felt like maybe it was seeming as if it was appropriating something he he used for himself. So I wanted to make it as simple as possible. And there were a lot of those biographies that came out at the time, like Steve Jobs and various others, where they just used the, the name of the person. So I thought just calling it Prince um, was I – just, I just liked the, that it sort of felt like it, it summed it up. It didn't need anything else. But then when it came out in America, um, they added The Man and His Music, I think, or The Man and the Music, um, mm-hmm. partly – partly because one of the things about the book is that it's very much a critical study of his music. I mean, there is biographical detail in there and there are interviews and there are all the things that maybe you would expect from a biography, but it is very much focused on on his music because I feel that he was somebody whose life was as much to do with his music as anything else. So, I mean, there are times that if you were writing a conventional biography, you might just say, Prince went into the studio every day for three years and it wouldn't really tell you very much because all he did was go into the studio and record another song. So you have to analyze the work and you have to see what he was doing during that time. So I felt that the, the to really get a, a, a sort of sense of Prince in the round, as it were, it's important to look at his music uh, alongside his life.
0: I love the way that you are writing it or that you did write it. And I, I'm very big into the technical aspect of digging into a song that way or a show or a tour or whatever. So I quite like the way that, that it all has come out in the way that you're writing it. So,
1: well, thank you very much. I think it is a matter of taste. I mean, I think some people, myself included, you know, I love books about musicians or writers or poets um, or film directors that really go into the detail in that way. Um, You know, some of the, I mean, and I felt that people had done that with, Bob Dylan or neil young, um, but i didn 't really feel at the time that that obviously I wrote the book before uh, Prince Prince died, but at the time I, there hadn 't been that many prince books, and it had been a long time since the since the last one, and I just felt that the people hadn 't really written about his his music in that way and giving it the, that sort of care and attention, and also looking at the live performance aspect because so much of what was incredible about Prince was his live performances and what he did on stage, and I felt that was underrepresented, and people. The books that existed tend to focus on just Purple Rain, or you know, or just the first ten years. Um, in fact, even now, some of the b- books that have come out since his death have, have focused on a, a particular small period. And I really wanted to try and try and tackle the whole of his career, and also on the the unreleased material because you know he was such a prolific musician, but he also um, produced an incredible amount of uh, unreleased stuff. Some of which, quite a lot of which, is is circulating.
0: Yeah, and there's. there's so much out there and the difference, you know, since, since his death and there have been so many people who are putting out some amazing video footage via Twitter is where I'm seeing most of it. Right. Yeah. And it's just so every night I, every night that I do this, I kind of get a look from my wife because she's (laughs) like, you're watching Prince videos again. (laughs) But the difference in, his tours and his changes that he made and and not reinventions really but his evolution i guess of of the way that he not only portrayed himself but what he did to some of the songs along the way is just it it's so huge
1: absolutely um you're lucky to have a tolerant wife as i do because uh during our during the seven years I was writing the book, um, a lot of the time, or well, some of the time, I was travelling around, going to watch live performances in, in different countries, uh, including the States. The most intense period I think for me of of sort of devotion to the live performances of Prince was when he he, he was quite playing quite close to my house in the in the O2 Centre, and he was doing 21 nights of shows and um, 14 or 15 after shows, and uh, I went to uh, 19 of the shows and all but one of the after shows. And these were, you know, it was, they were, it was quite a big commitment because these the shows were starting about seven thirty. He'd play for two or three hours, and then he'd start the after shows between sort of eleven and one o'clock at night. And then sometimes he'd play to four thirty in the morning, two or three days a week, including Sundays. So, you know, it was quite one of those things where, you know, it, my wife was very patient to let me go out and do that it was before we had children. But it was incredible. When I look back on it now, I think it was an incredible opportunity to see just how the performances developed night after night because he would, between the first show and the last main show, pretty much everything changed, but it gradually changed over the night. So he would would change bits of the set and it would, the songs would change. But the after shows were, were all almost all completely different. And some nights he'd come out and play like, nearly the whole of chaos and disorder another night he'd come out and do a psychedelic night another night he'd come out and do a very sort of almost a heavy metal night with uh with with a trio a power trio another night he'd do a jazz show and you really got to see just the uh the incredible amount of different things that that man could do that i don't think people really still realize you know people it's quite often that people say prince is a genius or prince is great on guitar or prince is good at this or that and the other but for me one of the the most amazing things was that he, he just does, doesn't have any parallels as a live performer. And it's not just that he's capable of going out and getting five-star review shows in a stadium. It's the fact that he was always experimenting um, and almost working like a kind of independent or underground artist simultaneously.
0: Yeah. And how many, how many nights or how many days did that 21 night show tour span out there in England?
1: I think it was about three months because it was okay. it was it was like he would play every well it was a, it was like Tuesdays, Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays but in different orders Um and he would try he tried to arrange it so he wouldn't have two shows together uh, or any more than two shows together so he could rest his voice and do the next.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah when they when he did it out here in LA and they announced it and I was trying to get tickets to shows and trying to figure out how to be able to go and where we were going to you know look for did we need to be down on the floor or not blah 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 and basically just wasted time but I kept trying to figure out is this after show counted as one of the 21 like am I am I really running out of time or do I have still like (laughs) two weeks to go or not
1: yeah I think it's quite flexible. i think he sort of decided decided along the way i mean that the the big l a show i i saw was i went out for do you remember remember he did those three shows in one night uh, and it was in yeah. the the Nokia theater and the the that complex and he did the big show i mean that was amazing so he started off with the the big show. In the big venue, and then moved, I think it was like maybe two thousand or five thousand, and then moved into a very small, club, the Conga room, which was about about a hundred people, and then and then moved into a, a bigger one that was about a thousand people. But that, I think that was one of the, the best shows I ever I ever saw of his. And also coming, well, you know, the other big one was coming out to his to his house in LA and um, watching it like, literally in his living space. So that was that. Obviously, was an incredible moment as well.
0: I remember reading about that. What time frame was that? That that was taking place.
1: That was in 2006. So basically what happened was my my editor had asked me, well, uh, he and I went to a a literary event uh, on the future of the short story. He, I hadn't met him before. He was a had edited a collection of short stories. And um, we went to that together and we just hit it off and we were talking a lot. And uh, on the last day I said, you know, I really respect your opinion and everything, but you're, you're not going to respect me now because I'm going back to London to uh, – early this was in 2002 uh to watch uh prince's one night alone tour and he was like are you kidding? I'm obsessed with Prince, and he was so obsessed with Prince, he used to phone Paisley Park as a teenager and and try and get put through to Prince every day. You know, and eventually, I think he got put through to one of the band oh and he gosh. made it made his made his life. So he said from then on, he said Look, you've got to write a book about Prince. And I was saying, well, I, I would love to, but I don't want to to write a book if he wouldn't like the idea. You know, I mean, I you know, it's sort of, I hadn't written a biography before, and I felt very uncomfortable because I knew how private he was and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I spoke to a, a, another friend who was a. A biographer. And he said, look, you've got to approach the musician or whoever it is, first of all, however private they are, because you might be surprised with what comes back. And he said that a lot of times he'd written books and the person he was interviewing or writing about didn't say they would give an interview or didn't give approval, but he got a tacit sort of acknowledgement that it was okay to go ahead. So I sent this letter to, to Prince, care of his record company, and I got, I was uh, expecting to receive maybe a, a cease and desist, but instead I got sent a ticket to, to LA, uh, I was put up in the Mondrian, and then uh, this car arrived at the hotel uh, and drove me up to his house, and uh, I walked into his, to, to the main area there, and there was Jude Law and Bruce Willis and Sharon Stone and David Covney and all of these celebrities, and then... Prince walks out on stage. I mean, the thing about Prince, you know, that as you'll know, that the, the, he would always be late, almost always. You know, the shows are mm-hmm. always, they never, they never start when they're supposed to. But it was about 11 o'clock at night and he just, and it just started the minute, it, you know, the minute I walked in. And I didn't realise this until afterwards, but there was supposed to be a very strict hierarchy where it was like Hollywood stars in the front row, then TV stars, then the music people, and then I was supposed to be somewhere at the back. But because I didn't know this, the minute I saw him walk to stage, I, I ran to the front and stood there sort of literally in front of him uh, and the band and in fact the guy there was a guy filming it who came over and because I'm quite tall I'm 6'2 and he came over and said look uh, all the other celebrities are, are 5'2 and you're in the way and you know your head's blocking the shot so can you move back but fortunately that was that was after the the uh, or about you know two-thirds of the way through the gig so I was happy to happy to move back yeah but yeah so that was and then so I watched him play it was the time he was touring with Tamar so it started out as a kind of you know she's one of his protégés he started out doing a show with Tamar with her very much central and him at the back playing playing guitar, playing, being his sort of being a, I think he was playing a bass, playing bass. He was being famous mm. bassist. And then after that, about halfway through, he came to the front and then did a, you know, did a sort of full on print set. It was quite a weird period. It was the 3121 album, which uh, that era, which I really like. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of stuff that that he played for a while and then disappeared. He was, it was a sort of period of transition. I remember he played a Annie DeFranco song, uh, and there was some, a few really? few other yeah there was sort of to the teeth i think well there's a few other sort of surprising choices i mean as you oh. often got with them, and you know and it was one of those things where thinking okay well you know i would never have heard that song if i hadn't been there that night right because, you know he never recorded it he never there no bootlegs have emerged of that that evening and there's so many occasions like that i mean a lot of those shows his shows were recorded and we do have lots of occasions where people did manage to to record those moments but there's so many that that are lost i think and that and that was one of the things that i was trying to to write about in the book you know there there were there were times when he would write like a pastiche song um for one of his band to sing and you'd hear it and you would just think okay this is an old soul song but it's actually a prince original and you would only know you know if you you know again it wasn't recorded it wasn't you only find out about it through listening to audience recordings Mm -hmm. i'd be so nice if the i mean i don't think it will happen but it would be so nice if the estate did a really good job on releasing shows you know if they went and found which recordings you know, we're out there that were, you know, that were really worth putting out in the best possible quality.
0: Yeah. And and there's that, you know, there's that little whisper that he recorded everything and every concert and every performance and in some way was recorded. And so like, even, even if three fourths of it was recorded, there's that hope that you're holding out that it will come out of the vault and that the estate will release it. But also like, It's almost got to be like a side, you know, kind of similar to what he was doing before with his own website, because obviously you start releasing a lot of that stuff and it's not going to be highly commercial and there aren't going to be the casual fans who are going to race out to, you know, get their hands on a 2004 concert. but if if they were able to find a way to have a site or something like that, where people were able to choose and download a, a lot of the bands that I, cause I'm very um, big into the jam band community and a lot of them prescribed to that where sure. they are releasing a soundboard slash soundboard matrix recording of almost all of their shows because like Prince and why I think this could potentially work in their favor is it's not the same every night, you know, you're not getting the same show every single night. And I know he didn't change his set list up immensely every night, but at least you have a, you know, seasonal thing from each tour or whatever, where they could release a good amount of concert recordings. Those are the ones that I, you know, I, I want to get some of those, um, re- Remastered and previously unreleased uh studio stuff, but i I also his performing and performances was such a big part of his career, I think, and kind of like what you were saying, like that's the stuff that's golden to me that I really want to be able to tap into at some point
1: yeah I mean I mean, I hear what you're saying about the jam bands i mean i but for me like you know I mean, I like bands like the Grateful Dead or say ween, or, you know, where when you're hearing the performances, um, I say that's quite similar to Prince, because you don't know which song they're going to go off on. Right. You know, so you look at the set list, and and sometimes the set list tells you the whole story, and sometimes it only tells you a bit of the story. So, you know, it's, I mean, I, but I, I, you know, I think the Grateful Dead are probably, and probably Bob Dylan are the two sort of best examples of how to handle that side of things. I don't think... Oh, maybe Miles Davis as well, actually. Maybe Miles Davis is a Mm -hmm. more more instructive example for how Prince's estate may be handled. Because you can... uh, You know, it is going to be a smaller audience, you know, as you say. I mean, not everybody's going to want to go out and buy small shows that nobody was interested in. But, you know, it's really worked... In the Grateful Dead's favor, I think, over over the long time of their, their career. You know, it's reached the point now where it's really sort of generating money all the time, you know, so it's, you have to sort yeah. of be you have to have that kind of long-sighted vision for it, I think.
0: And also, I mean, there's the there's the physical pressing versus the digital and yeah, yeah. you know, the dead did that for a long time with their they tried the From the Vault series and they did, you know, a concert every year or whatever, and then they did they had one of their inside guys pick a show, and they had all their Dick's Picks series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which that uh, now has a much different meaning in the time of social media now. You can't really um, call uh, record releases Dick's Picks and get away with that anymore, (laughs) but... Um, but they had that whole series and a lot of people were buying them and then they, you know, went through to some of the digital releases, you know, they have different websites that are kind of attributed to that for a number of jam bands or whatever. And there's a, you know, I know that there's a very high level of audience that is seeing a show that or, or not seeing a show that is being played, watching the set list, you know, on Twitter as it's being released And as soon as it is hitting the internet, they're rushing out and paying the $8 or whatever it is for an MP3 download, you know, that's a low, very low cost to the band avenue for them to get that music out. And it just continues to perpetuate the machine, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think that was one of the things that maybe people don't necessarily realize about Prince was that... He had that same thing of people, you know, tweeting about the songs he was playing, um, you know, song by song, people being on the Internet, very keen to know what he was performing. I mean, it was particularly like, for example, when he came over here to do the Third Eye Girl shows and you had no idea what he was going to do. And it was, you know, incredibly exciting. And, and you know, I mean, one of the you know, one of my favorite print songs is this song called Wasted Kisses that he only played live one time at one, you know, one after show. Um, And there are lots of times like that, you know, that literally this is the only time he's going to perform that song. But also things like when he would jam on um, Billy Cobham's uh, Stratus, you know, I mean, that often was one of the most exciting parts of a show was uh, hearing him do, you know, how he would improvise with this song, you know, him, you know, the same way that that watching Miles Davis would be.
0: It just makes it gives me goosebumps to think about them doing something like that. But time will tell with all of the things that they've got going on. I know the estate has a billion things probably coming at them right now, so...
1: No, I know. I mean, it's disappointing. I mean, I, well, I, I say that. We don't know. Who knows? They may, they may surprise us yet. I haven't heard, you know, sort of final confirmation about what will be on that that Purple Rain remaster box set. The
0: second disc or whatever? Or, well, I think yeah. it might
1: be four or five discs, but I've heard that oh, it might... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I've heard it may include two live shows, um, full live shows. Mm. So that, that seems like, you know, the right way to go to begin with. So if they can carry on like that, I mean, if that's true, and then if they, they carry on doing that with other tours, I think that might actually be really really great but but uh, yeah i mean ideally it would get to a point i'd love to see it at a point where they were putting out you know just as you say just sort of random shows you know here's one from 2004 here's one from 83 here's one from you know uh 92 and and you sort of find the interest in the in the shows i mean there is something that they've been doing that, that the estate's been doing that's quite interesting to me where they've been um showing live shows at paisley park um i think these are video recordings um and they seem to be choosing them quite eclectically so that that's Mm -hmm. sort of quite interesting you know i know i looked at the other night and it seemed that they were showing a, a musicology show and then you know and then they were showing a love sexy show so it seemed i mean you know obviously those are big shows and maybe the ones that you would think of but it still seemed they weren't shows as far as i'm aware that have been widely released before so maybe if they can do something like that at some point then that that would be fantastic i mean i i'd love the idea of yeah i mean the dead are the main example i think of you know just going there and, and having 30, 30 print shows coming up in, and trying to decide which one you i mean you obviously end up getting all of them but you know which, which one yeah yeah
0: yeah that's the way it would work out pretty much
1: i also think the same way as with the jam bands, you know, it's sort of the whole show that's interesting. So you wouldn't want sort of edited highlights, but you'd want to hear how the the set developed over over a whole night.
0: Yeah, and I think the potential, like if they were to do this, I mean, this is a huge if. Or when you talk to the right people, Matt, and make <laughs> <Yeah>. this
1: happen, <laughs> be nice to think I had that power. But I, I don't yeah, right.
0: Know. Yeah, but if they were to do some of those. Nights, and I know he didn't just do that during the 21 night performances, but I think a night like that tells a story like that night you were talking about, where it's three shows in one night. You know, to be able to box up something as you know, March 4th, 2012, and have it be the two shows that he played or whatever, or yeah, yeah, there's so many possibilities. So, we are officially. Uh, Matt and Tim are now throwing our hat <laughs> into the mix to take over the live recording releases and m- do it in a way that everybody would just gobble up. Obviously, yeah,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a dream. It would be a dream job wouldn't it, you know, to sort of sit uh, sitting there and go through oh my the shows.
0: God. That would be ridiculous. I, I, I mean, that's the thing is you you talk about how much material he has recorded and how many I've thought about this so many times, how many people do they have going through and listening to it to see what they are going to do with each individual item? And what is that person's level of knowledge? And, you know, who are these people that are doing all of this? It's we'll, we'll know in time, I guess.
1: Uh, I was talking to Lee Ronaldo Sonic Youth, and they did this thing where they got a, a sort of intern, I think it was to go through all of their recordings and work out which ones to put out. And, you know, it's sort of, and I don't think very much has come out yet. I think they've got more to they're looking at. I mean, I th- they've put out a couple of things. But again, it's that thing of like, what's it like to sit there and do that? You know, you to be a like, you know, a Prince fan and be given keys to all of those recordings would be quite yeah. something.
0: Yeah, that would you obviously have to have very good standing with them. And I mean, potentially be somebody who's already done some of his mixing or mastering before. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but if you look at like with Dylan when they got they got Clinton Halen advising them, which I think was a really smart thing for the management to do, where they've got somebody, you know, who 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 basically knew everything there was to know about Dylan and he could tell them where the recordings were and what they were missing. And then they could work out how to, you know, how to release it. And I hope that the uh, the Prince of State does something similar, you know, they don't just go for because obviously you want somebody with audio experience, but equally you want somebody who knows what they're doing and knows their way around the the back catalog and why things are interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a humongous task and I mean we say how it would be a dream job, but you also would have a pretty decent amount of pressure as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and also the thing is it's it's you know how they work out how to do it whether they do, you know, how how quickly they release stuff whether they, you know, they just put it out very regularly or if they do it, you know, working out what the tolerance for it is, I guess.
0: Yeah, and figuring out how much people are going to consume and We've given them a a kickstart here today, so at least they know two people
1: (laughs) would be out there with their money. (laughs) But, you know, I'm mad like that. You know, I I love live recordings of almost everybody, even bands I don't like. I'm I'm interested in their live recordings.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously something very different from I remember kind of one of my and I'm about to slam a band here. Sorry, but (laughs) I remember like I, I, I don't remember when it was or. Whatever, but I th- I think this was the first time that it really struck me in this way when I saw Blink-182 performing on some award show or something, and their vocals were so bad, and it might have just been an off day, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, I have not seen them live before, whatever, but... The vocals were just so completely awful. And I remember sitting with a couple of people and we were like, wow, they obviously have an amazing producer and whoever is working in the studio with them because they cannot sing at all. (laughs) So that's the flip side of a live performance. but. It's good to get the energy and see what a band brings and
1: well, the thing about prince though is even i say like, even even when Prince was struggling with his vocals, the shows could be really interesting you know he there was one show where he had a really bad cold, and he you know and you would say from anyone else from a technical point of view, this wouldn't be an interesting show, but instead he sang different songs he sang them in a different way, so it was in ninety two and it was a really interesting show you know so so you know that's one of the things about him where mm-hmm. you know even the things that you might say as a sound technician. You'd say you wouldn't put it out because it isn't top quality, but it is interesting in itself.
0: Yeah, and and because you talked about The Dead earlier, I will say there's, and because I I know you love live performances, and I don't know if you know about this or not, but I think it was the beginning of 1978 or 1977, but there was a three-show stretch at the very beginning of the year where Jerry Garcia had laryngitis and Uh he couldn't sing at all. And they did all of the other songwriter, Bob Weir's songs. And so for a lot of people, like they were probably going to those shows or whatever and thinking, what the hell, like this is going to suck. No offense to Bobby, but, (laughs) um, but you could tell. And, and I loved those concerts because jerry was just ripping it up on guitar because Mm -hmm. it was all he could do you know and it it kind of made you or made him work a little bit harder at the other things that he was able to do and to be able to have his quote-unquote voice be stronger in those shows by his guitar
1: yeah no absolutely Uh, you know and prince did similar things there was that show in um in louisville where the horns hadn't shown up, mm. so um on the one night alone tour, so he rearranged it to make it much more of a piano show, and that's a you know that's a one of a kind show and that's the sort of thing i'd love to to see them put out so you could say you know mm-hmm. yes you've seen that you've already had the one night alone box set, but there was this night that he did something very different, never to be repeated, uh purely thinking in the moment and coming up with a completely different experience you know I, I, you know those are the sort of things that other musicians just don't do, they would have canceled the show or, you know, they wouldn't have tried to think of a creative way around it. Right. As Prince and and the dead did in both, both those instances.
0: Yeah. That's part of, I I really am hoping that they release at least one good version of the uh, piano on a microphone tour, because those, the little bits that I have seen from it are just so compelling. And obviously all the more so because of what age it was in his life, but just, his different composition and the way that he changed things, you know, I like to go through every once in a while and pick out a year and listen for those songs that he completely altered from where they started as a, as either the studio version or even how much different little things would become in the live version. That's what one of the many many things that I loved about his performing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, you know, I, I also really like. way certain musicians would have an impact on him so for example when he started working with um frederick Yonne, who's a harmonica player you know and those shows are completely different because it was really odd to have you know suddenly have a a harmonica in the band Mm -hmm. and it made him you know and it made him reinvent songs that had been very predictable things like cream yeah so you know i'd never heard a good version of cream before and then suddenly when he had Yonne in the band he sort of turned it into a 15 minute jazz song and completely transformed it you know you know and that was one of those songs if you'd said to me which Prince song will he never, you know, will you never get an interesting version of? It would have been that. And then suddenly, you know, here he was turning it around, changing it completely.
0: Yeah, it's funny. During that just made me think of something during uh, the couple of year, I, I guess she probably moved away a year or so before he died. But Rabia, who was, was she, I don't know if she was Diamond or if she was Pearl, but Rabia was a neighbor of mine for, right, right, right. for a little over a year, and I can't remember she had a she had a little girl, and she would come out and we have a little grass area that's not too far from our house and a bunch of the moms in our neighborhood would go out there and bring their little kids, and everybody would play, and everybody would talk and whatever and I don't know what she said, but one day she said something to one of the moms and all of the moms started Googling her that night (laughs) and trying to find out who she was and what she had been in. And actually, I think it was because of her time being on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) So they started, you know, kind of talking about that a little bit with her. And it was, it was a few months after that, that something happened where my wife, like, when I came home from work verbally assaulted me with the information about who she was (laughs) and I was kind of flipping out and I never really, I really held it in inside. I don't know how I did it, but I don't think I ever had a conversation at all with her about Prince. I know the moms did. And they, you know, a couple of times my wife would say how she said, what an amazing person he was. And, how great it was and her life has changed dramatically. Like she um, became a born again Christian and like is a motivational speaker now and is just very different from who she was when she was with him. But she talked about him like he was the greatest person on the planet and really, you know, made you feel good about all of the things that she had to say about him. Uh, But I, I really wish that I would have just at one point said, all right, I'm going to get this all out. We're going to have to have a long conversation today. But I never got that chance. Blew it.
1: (laughs) I'm very envious of you. And um, it's one of those things where um, a lot of the connections in the book, a lot of the people that I talk to, came about through talking to people and friends and finding out people who had connections with Prince were quite surprising you know sort of Mm -hmm. you know so a lot of the times there would be odd connections like you know there's a there's a guy at at the university where I teach called Frank Griffiths who's a saxophonist and he was friends with Claire Claire Fisher so he put me in touch with Claire Fisher there was another uh, a mum at the school she knew uh, uh, this guy Chris Paul who was uh, Prince's UK manager for a while I had a friend who was a screenwriter in LA who knew Wendy and Lisa and said that they would be willing to talk. So a lot of it, you know, a lot of it, I mean, part of the seven years of writing the book, part of it was just the actual listening to all the material, but a lot of it was equally sort of waiting for interviews. And and they sort of started to come together and they started to come in clumps. And and that's when I started to feel that, you know, maybe there was a reason. I, I really wasn't sure whether I was going to, even though what I'd sort of taken, you know, done the deal and taken the money for the book, I didn't know. I was, uh, for a long period, I was thinking of giving the money back because I was just thinking that this is such, an, such a big project. Mm. And I really didn't want to publish a book on Prince unless I felt it was worthy of him. And I reached a point where I, th- I said, okay, well, if I get enough people who've worked with him to talk about him in an interesting way, then that will be justification for it. And then when some of them, started to die as well, or, you know, or, or realized that they or said that they wouldn't speak again, or, you know, it, it sort of felt like this, okay, this is the only record that there's going to be of this moment. And no matter what happens in the future, and obviously, I didn't expect Prince to to, to die. But I thought, you know, this is this is history, and it's worth recording.
0: Right. So uh, we, <laughs> I was fully expecting us to start on the whole dad side, but I uh, <laughs> just kind of let us go on this. But how did you I get asked this question as well, but how did you as a white boy in England get your start with Prince? Like how did you fall into him at all? And let me clarify and specify with that, because I completely agree and know that Prince transcends race. Yeah, yeah. He transcends sex or gender. I well, he transcends sex, but gender (laughs) and a little bit age as well, obviously. So I ask this question with that clearly in mind.
1: Um, well, it started with with Purple Rain, both in the playground. People were playing in the playground, but also my mum had it at home. She had she used to buy these cassettes that would have the hits of the day. They'd have about 10 songs, and on one of these tapes, there was uh, When Doves Cry. So hmm. I was listening to that a lot. And then it was really uh, Sign the Times was the one where I sort of discovered it for myself. It was because of the age. You know, I was 10 when Purple Rain came out and 13 when uh, Sun the Times came out. So... You know, I I regret not being, you know, I was too little (laughs) at the time to, you know, to get into him with album one. And I think, you know, if I had been of of age at that time, I would have done. But instead, it was some of the times that really hit me. And then I went back. Well, actually, before I went back and bought the other albums, the first thing was just discovering a bootleg, you know, because I was listening to the album over and over again and trying to make sense of it. And I think it's an incredibly cryptic album. I think even to this day, I I don't fully understand it. And that's one of the things I love about it. But there are a lot of references on it that, you know, as... I was very into literature as well. At the same time, you know, I was, there seemed a lot of symbolism that was a bit inexplicable. And one of the one of those things was the the crystal ball. You know, going to the crystal ball. What was the crystal ball? You know, why are they singing mm. about the crystal ball? And then I went and bought a. You know, went to the record shop a couple of weeks after um, Saturday Times came out, and they had this box vinyl set of an album of a, a bootleg album called The Royal Jewels. And on the Royal Jewels, uh, I noticed on the back there was, well, it had a description on the back. It was describing Prince's studio setup and saying that he was recording in the middle of the night and he had all his band on call. And as a young sort of writer, writing in the middle of the night, it seemed like such an incredibly romantic idea. You know, this, uh, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, obviously it was a, there was a bit of exaggeration to it because he didn't literally have his musicians there. Sometimes he did, but, you know, they weren't, the way I was imagining it was probably more romantic than the reality of it. But on that album was the song Crystal Ball. And I heard that and I just thought, okay, right now I'm obsessed. And, and from then on, well, actually, I mean, the big, the big question for me was how he got from that material to Love Sexy. And mm-hmm. there seemed such a sonic leap, you know, in every sense, um, from what he was doing on sign the times and the albums before that yeah. to love sexy. And I think, you know, part of that was because those records were coming together piecemeal. You know, there were songs on sign the times dating back something like strange relationship, I think dates back to, to 82, you know, they'd gone through various permutations. So it didn't feel like an organic movement. You know, I couldn't understand how one year he's recording sign the times and then the next year he's doing Love, Sexy with such a different sound and, and, and so completely different and no kind of continuation in, in the two styles. And of course, it's because Sign of the Times was, was lots of different songs from lots of different eras brought together and Love, Sexy was one concentrated burst of, of recording. Right. So that answering that question was something that aesthetically you know, has interested me ever since. And that, and that sort of is at the root of the book, really, was sort of working out how he went from one style and one group of people to the next. And then, you know, and then you sort of backtrack and work out, well, what happened with the revolution and, you know, and and, and sort of, and then go forward, you know, how does he end up, uh you know, sort of things like Diamonds and Pearls seem such a a left field turn and Graffiti Bridge. Half of it feels good, but some of it feels terrible. Mm. You know, so it's sort of, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's like, well, why is some of it terrible? And you know, and then working out that okay, well, it's because again, it was like much older material, but it was stuff that he, some of it was, and some of it he'd written when he was past his you know his kind of great moment where everything seemed he touched, seemed to turn to gold, and it was piecemeal again. It was like you know, it was like some like of the times comes together piecemeal, but it feels organic, whereas Graffiti Bridge. It's piecemeal and it feels piecemeal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Sign of the Times has a, has such a, like, that's the perfect word for it. It feels so organic. And I think, I think Purple Rain, even if you, which it's very difficult to do, but if you take the film out of it completely mm-hmm. and just listen to the album as it is, it's so. It, it's kind of sign of the timesy in that way to me where it just everything just fits together so perfectly. And even the albums before that kind of don't really, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I kind of loved about those as well. They have so many differences in them. I mean, his self-titled album, like going from, you know, a love song to a punk basically a punk song mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to something back to a love, almost disco song is just so uh, varied, but purple rain pretty much. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of some difference, but it just all fits together. And I think that was what son of the times kind of sounded like to me, but I'm a, I'm just a little bit older than you. Mm-hmm. So when purple rain was out, I was 12 and I remember having the the vinyl of it, mm-hmm. but I remember sitting on my couch, and my dad was a pastor, and sitting on the couch reading through the lyrics, and I remember my dad asking to see it, and me just taking this big, huge gasp and basically waiting to have Prince shut down in my life. And Mm -hmm. for him to say, you can never listen to this guy again. (laughs) But I guess he looked at all the wrong songs or the right ones um, and just kind of handed it back to me. And I think a little bit of that played into my need for more, pretty much, you know, knowing at that age, at 12 and 13, that I was listening to dance music, sex, romance, and, you know, let's pretend we're married and head. I mean, I was listening to those over and over and all of these songs that I really shouldn't be listening to. It was just at the perfect time for this white kid in Southern California, whose (laughs) parents are like super conservative Christians to be like listening to these things that are so naughty and not and still kind of not really getting them you know i mm-hmm. remember i i i knew a little bit of what was going on but not entirely because of how good he was with hiding a lot of it mm-hmm. or making it you know so much of it innuendo or whatever but there obviously is the blatant in your face stuff as well
1: yeah it's weird because i mean with my parents my dad just doesn't like music at all. Was never, never been interested ah. in music. But, but my mum, uh-huh. my mum, my mum loves music. But she, you know, she and she loves the Stones and Rod Stewart and and you know, sort of rockers. She likes, she likes sort of hard rock. But for some reason, Prince never worked for her. You know, she just didn't. She, the, mm. she just wasn't. In, she, she didn't get it, and she didn't really like. I don't think she liked the way he looked. You know, and it just was somebody that just didn't really impact for her on the, in the same way. I think also maybe the sort of femininity of it as well. You know, that she was somebody who liked the sort of the much more kind of heavier, harder music. So mm-hmm. it was sort of so, so there was never any question of, of you know sort of my parents worrying about me listening to it because, you know, she was listening to, you know, Goat's Head Soup or whatever, you know, right, at her. Right, you know. right. But there was a sense that it that she just didn't understand it. And I think even now, you know, I think they're both quite perplexed that I spent, you know, so long writing a book about, <laughs> about someone they yeah. just I mean they don't think he's terrible they just don't get it you know they just don't they just you know, right. they, they don't hear I mean the one time I did this one radio show where I um I played some of his more obscure music and talked about about that and she listened to that and she was like oh yeah there are there, are, there were some songs on there that I that I thought were okay but but mm. it, he doesn't he didn't really do it for her in that in that way he just wasn't somebody that she admired I think if if she had been really into it it might have put me off so I'm quite glad in a way that right she, <laughs> yeah you
0: wouldn't have enjoyed it as much Oh, wait, my, my mom likes this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So your mom is kind of like the Rolling Stones fans out here that did not like Prince.
1: Yeah, she would have been booing and, and throwing things. <laughs> like that. In fact, she went to see she went to see the Stones. My parents, both of the parents, went to see the Stones in '82 in England, but it wasn't Prince. It was um, George Thorogood and the Destroyers, which uh, you know, it shows the sort a of much money better match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah,
0: my wife's uncle was actually at that show because he's a humongous Rolling Stones fan and every once in a while usually when when i go to a family event with a prince t-shirt on he'll come up and tell me that story all over again <laughs> about all of them basically booing him off the stage it's crazy
1: yeah yeah it's terrible and and you know and it, and it shows the sort of you know the sort of closed-mindedness uh, you know of a certain type of rock fan that they couldn't really accept what he what he was offering
0: yeah so i'll kind of finish out our prince stuff with some sure, sure. lists Uh, aside from, well, no, you can include, include (laughs) whatever you want, but what would be your top five, not in any necessary order Prince albums?
1: Oh, okay. I thought we were going to say songs. Okay. Albums. Uh, So I'll do it in order. I'll try and do it in order. And number one would, uh, well, joint number one, I'm cheating already. Joint number one would be Love Sexy and Sign of the Times. Um, I think that, you know, I, for me, they're the, in different ways, are the two, the, the sort of, pinnacle for me mm-hmm. um and then number three would be mm, probably dirty mind and then 1999 and then probably around the world in a day but it's it, it, you know it's one that i i mean that was the album for me that really came alive in doing the writing the book it was what you know it was the one Mm where i mean that and parade they were both both albums i mean i like both the albums but they they sort of gain the more you know about them
0: yeah
1: i mean you know some of the other some of the other albums you know the the actual the the process of composition doesn't necessarily change your opinion of them but but knowing what he was going through no knowing the way that that sort of around the world in a day started off with paisley park the song and it was originally going to be called paisley park and um you know, it sort of started off almost like a kind of post success album, you know, sort of like almost like an on the road album and then slowly became the much more abstract, much weirder record that it, that it is. Um, and, and, you know, just the musicianship of the, of the the rest of the revolution on that record. I really, I really love as well. And then the same with parade. It's like, you know, I love the, um, the fact that the original demos were so skeletal and then he got Claire Fisher involved and then, he added the orchestral arrangements to it and then sort of mixed it around again and changed it around. So it's sort of those, I mean, that's six, so I'll, I'll leave off parade, but yeah, I mean, those would be my, my favorites I think. Um, but I could, you know, I mean, I could find it's almost easier to do the ones I don't like, you know I mean? I could find almost anything, you know, any day other albums could raise higher. I mean, the one that I have never really understood why people, other people love it so much, um, the gold experience. I've been listening again to that recently and, and it really stands up in an odd way. I mean, it's an odd because of the, the, the songs that aren't on it. There's a sort of a version of that that's in my head. That's that perfect. That it, that it doesn't have in reality because of some of the songs that he took off it a bit like Dylan albums, you know, when he takes off the best songs at the last minute, but you know, that's an album that I'd put pretty low down, but it, but even that, you know, sort of improves the more you listen to it.
0: Yeah. I think I would have to share that sentiment. And Maybe some people are turned on more by it uh, because of the most beautiful girl in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mm-hmm. so I'll let you cheat on this one if okay. you have to get off your phone. <laughs> I mean, get on your phone. Sorry. Go on. To do a top five list from nineteen uh, because of how you did yours, <laughs> I will well, say from from nineteen ninety six on
1: okay all right i uh i'll try and do it not on my phone it's top five you say or top, yeah yeah okay i'll try and then and then i'll and then if i need to cheat i will do um so number one would be wasted kisses which i think is just after the, the cutoff point you know it's on new power soul and um i love that one because it was just so unexpected you know it was a hidden track and it's theatrical and it's got a story to it and it's incredibly dark and weird and it's got all these associations that that people argue about whether or not it it has or not and it was just you know it was a it just shows how many surprises there are in prince's catalogue because it's you know not a particularly good album uh although i think it's better than you know people make out but uh in fact it started off as a prince album and then he decided not to make it a prince album because it wasn't it wasn't going the way he wanted to so he made it a uh a new power generation album instead mm-hmm. although it's got prince on the cover so it feels you know it feels very much like it is a prince album and then you're listening to it and it all seems of a piece and then suddenly this incredible song comes at the at the end so that would be number one number two would be beautiful strange uh off of the remix version of uh raven to the joy fantastic again you know a, a, another incredible song that was a surprise you know that you didn't you know, I don't really like ray Unto the Joy Fantastic, particularly. And then, you know, suddenly he remixes it and comes up with something absolutely incredible and puts in this song that, you know, should be much better known. And and hearing that live, you know, was was great. You know, it was a, it was a really exciting moment. Number three would be Xenophobia from the One Night Alone tour. It's on, I think it's on the, the live album you know, a long jazz instrumental mainly inspired by, you know, kind of fairly pedestrian thing of, of, Prince not wanting to take off his shoes at airports, but he goes from that to terrorism and fear of strangers and others. And, you know, and it's also quite a hard jazz track, you know, I mean, it's quite a, you know, a lot of, a lot of Prince people don't like a lot of Prince's jazz music because, mm-hmm. um, it's seen as soft or elevator music or muzak or whatever. But I think that one's one that's actually quite hard and quite, quite interesting. Um, 3121 mainly for and you'll understand this as a grateful dead fan and a jam band fan that song was a huge leaping off point for for prince from 2006 onwards whenever he played it live he would do it in so many different ways and he would weave in when the Saints Go Marching In, he would weave in uh, down by the riverside. He would weave in, he would do, there were two versions of it. There was 3121 and there's 3121 Jam. And he would just, you know, go all over the shop and and really do a, an incredible musical workout. And then finally, I think, am I up to five? Yeah, I yeah, think so. So. Uh, so for five, I'm going to go for, and this is a real left field one, the song Prince and the Band, which he never recorded a studio. We he did record a studio version of it, but it was never released but he played it live hundreds of times and he played it coming out of uh, the song musicology often. So he would play the song musicology. And then he would, it would become this other song called Prince in the band where he would uh, slag off record labels. He'd talk about tax avoidance schemes. Uh, he would talk about the band. It was a bit like sort of had a James Brown quality. It also had a kind of Graham central station introducing the band type quality. It, it, it sort of fit mm-hmm. similar to the jam, you know, that, that song that they did. And it, just seeing him, whenever he played that, like you know, I'd watch him play musicology, and just think, oh, please go into you know into Prince and the band, and, huh. so, and sometimes he would then go into play that uh, you know play that funky music, White Boy, a cover of that, and then another song, and then you know, and this would be like those sort of Grateful Dead moments where you know they're going off and doing playing in the band or whatever, you know, a sort of twenty-minute improvisation where he was going in and out of different songs. And there's a really my absolute favorite version of it is on or rather was at the Indigo nightclub where he, during that, the O two 2 stint where um, the rest of the, it was a performance where he'd done around the world in a day and and a whole lot of love. And he done a lot, and it was really sort of heavy, psychedelic show. And Party Up, I think he did. He, he did, I can't remember exactly which, mm. which Mind Song he did that. Night. I think it was Party Up. And then at the very end of the show, he goes into musicology and Prince and the Band and was just having such fun with it. And, you know, he had the entire room eating out of his hand. And, you know, just watching him do that with a song that nobody really knew, you know, I mean, the audience did because they're, or some of the audience did because they're Die Hard fans. But you'd think he was playing, you know, Purple Rain or something because people were just going absolutely crazy and just seeing yeah. him, seeing the sort of the fun he had with that.
0: Uh, it's, I like hearing that, hearing your different takes on that because a lot of his later stuff is so, I don't know, it misconstrued and a lot of it is difficult to connect with and attach to. And, you know, a lot of the albums are kind of even even the way that that the gold experiences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're just kind of in his brain space of seemingly I'm going to do what I want to do and yeah. I'm going to record it. And but there is so much good stuff that is still in all of that. I mean, even in. Even in his last two albums, and anybody listening, don't at me for saying this, but (laughs) you know, a lot of a lot of those um, songs from those last few albums are the ones that I will really crank up in my car when I'm driving somewhere. You know, and and a lot of that is because some of those are kind of those more rocking Prince songs for me that I enjoy, but I I think a lot of people don't spend enough time in in the later music. And I think that I made a very after he died, that was one of my first things that I did was delve into some of that um, later stuff that I had not given a ton of time to previously so
1: yeah yeah i mean you know i mean like hit, hit and run phase two i think is a you know it's a great album i love almost everything on that Then then hit and run phase one I, i'm sort of less keen on but i feel that that's one that's going yeah. to grow in the future but the that song the ex's face on that album i really you know it's one i think that's one of the, the sort of the the last of his really great songs and there was you know but there was also loads of stuff that didn't end up on those records you know i mean there were a lot of sort of quite dark love songs that he you know that he was putting out uh, ain't gonna miss you when you're gone um the bourgeoisie uh you know he was writing some some really quite i mean that some of that later stuff is is you know the very late stuff is very savage very peculiar and you know and almost completely forgotten and you know like a song like groovy potential that's on you know that is on the hit and run the second hit and run album i mean that song i mean i love that song i think it's a really great late track but it almost disappeared you know i mean it was sort of mm-hmm. you know i mean it, i think the choice between what went on hit and run phase two and what didn't seems to me almost quite arbitrary. It's a bit like back when he was doing the slaughterhouse and the um the chocolate invasion, you know, that you yeah. know where, you know, there was some stuff that you know, he, he didn't his process was public. I mean the thing is when he was recording if he'd put out everything that he was recording around the time of Sign of the Times it would have seemed incredibly eccentric and, you know, it would have be been impossible to make sense of. If you put all of the songs that he was doing around the slaughterhouse in the chocolate invasion era, there's some stuff that is completely out there and completely mad and, you know, and, and it's clearly just a, a lark in the studio. And the same with that last period. But then, every now and again, there's some really incredible great songs, and you know we we have them now we you know, because he was putting them out, you know, it wasn't just bootlegs. he was putting them out officially, so you you'd have the singles or the downloads or whatever, you know, and you could see when he chose to go back to something and work on it and then and some and he discarded something, and some of the things that he discarded were as worthy as the things that he carried carried on working on, yeah,
0: well, um, I think we've covered prints significantly
1: very enjoyably i must say it's been very it's great fun i've enjoyed that
0: we could probably do that for hours and hours
1: <laughs> days and days yeah yeah
0: so uh again you can find matt at 8 minutes idle on twitter um you can look him up on amazon for his novels matt thorn that's got an e at the end so look up matt and make sure you if you are as kooky for Prince as I am, (laughs) or even want to be able to do a much different, um, examination of his life and his music, because he is one of those that is not just writing songs to write songs. Like a lot of his work is so personal. And, um, so that is what I think makes that kind of a book and something that is so sizable as well to be so entertaining and informative as well is because you're getting such a good look into him through his performances and through uh, different songs and albums. So again, for you people here in the US, I th- believe it is called Prince, The Man and His Music.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I, I, can I just quickly say about that, you know, that I, I very much view the book as a as the start of a conversation, you know? So it, I like to hear from people who li- who've read it and are listening to the songs. And, you know, it's one of those things where, People will disagree about certain shows. There'll be shows that I say are fantastic that other people think are rubbish, or certain songs that I—I'm rude in the book about. I think there's only one song that I was slightly dismissive of early in the early period, which was Tambourine, and I saw these people going, "How can mm. he say that Tambourine's a bad song?" And it—and it, what I, all I was saying was that for me, Tambourine wasn't the, the best song on the album, or whatever, you know. So you know, it's the start of a conversation, and I, hopefully, it will, you know, for all Prince fans, from people who've listened to every single scrap of unreleased material to people who've listened to one album, you know, hopefully we'll find something to uh, entertain them or to argue with or agree with or whatever in the book.
0: I think uh, I'm waiting for a world where kind of like a museum walkthrough where we can read your book and like push a button and listen to the song that you are describing because there are some that you can't find easily or whatever. So if somebody can also collaborate with Prince's estate and Matt and make that happen,
1: <laughs> that would be great. That's a gold mine right there. Well, you know, I mean, it, you know, it felt important that I should cover every every single song, you know, that yeah. that we know about, you know. So I so I tried to do that because, it, you know, there are there are so many secret and interesting and, and, and unusual songs that he recorded that just really aren't known, you know. So uh, so I wanted to make sure that 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 was there that it covers everything.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, too. I think especially because then it for many people like me, like it gives me the drive to seek that out. And then I become the Indiana Jones of (laughs) Prince music. Yeah. you know, looking for these things to be able to have that conversation.
1: Well, you know, it was the same for me too. You know, I mean, I I had to, you know, go out and, or not, stay in, you know, and and, and bid on eBay for that seven inch with the Whistling Kenny B side or, the you, know, or uh, the, you know, find all those shows. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that was fantastic having that conversation with you, Matt. I appreciate your knowledge coming into play on all things Prince. And I'm very humbled to be able to have somebody that I can speak with in regards to the man who I mean changed so many lives changed my life obviously is a big part of your life as well so thank you
1: no no thank you it's really enjoyable it's one of the most enjoyable interviews I've, I've done I think
0: ah take that everybody
1: else <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, so again that. it's not like you know, it's not like, you know <laughs> <laughs> Chicago's the best audience that's at the others. end of all of his interviews <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well thank you for that yeah There you have it, our conversation about Prince, which is kind of funny that I am releasing them in this way, which is actually the way the conversation went. I normally do my episodes and my recordings and my conversations with people where we talk about the whole daddy side first. And then if we have a conversation about something else, it takes place after. And that's the way I release the episodes. But in this case, we kind of rolled straight into the Prince conversation. And we did that whole episode and then we kind of took a little break and then we went into his daddy episode. So again, huge, tremendous, enormous thanks to Matt for spending a late night on his side of the pond, having this long conversation with me. Uh, It was a fantastic conversation and felt like I was just having a long talk with a great guy, which is what a lot of these are. And I hope you guys are getting that out of that as well. So, you can find Matt on Twitter, 8 Minutes Idol, the number 8. You can find him and all of his books on Amazon, Matt Thorne, with an E at the end. You can find Daddy Unscripted on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on Google Play for you Android users. And you can find us on our original website, daddyunscripted.com, which is where the blog is and where a lot of these photos that go along with these episodes can be found. I did create a little blog post of photos and words to go along as a companion piece to the map Thorne episodes. So you can find those on the website as well. And you can also find us on Twitter at daddy unscripted, Instagram, Facebook, all of those things. And you can send me an email at daddyunscripted@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I get a lot of those from you guys and keep them up. That's how I find these people on Twitter and um, ask them if they're interested The day that I'm recording this right now happens to be the day before I'm going to a book signing for Bill Walton. And I'm going to give him a card and try to get Bill Walton on the show. So I don't know if any of you know Bill Walton personally, but if you do, maybe you could give him a little nudge as well. I would love to have Bill Walton on this podcast. I think he's perfect and uh, we could have a great conversation about many things, so many things with Bill Walton. So that is the latest kind of person that most of you will know that I'm trying to reach out and get for the podcast. So we'll see if that happens. I want to also thank Umphreys McGee for the use of their music in all of the Daddy Unscripted podcast episodes. And specifically, I will assure you, all music in this podcast episode is by umphreys mcgee so anything you're hearing in the background and during the intro and outro that is all umphreys mcgee and so good so thanks again to that band for being so gracious and letting me use their music in the podcast stay tuned for the next episode that should be next week or the week after and that will be my daddy conversation with matt and us talking about his relationship with his dad. And it's a lot of conversation that goes through finding your way to being a dad and being able to parent your children through all kinds of life experiences. And for those of you who came here for the first time to listen to the podcast, thank you very much for joining. If you are a Prince fan, maybe you know somebody else who I can have a conversation with, I would love to, as Matt and I were talking about the conversation starter that his book is, I would love to have more conversations with other personalities and other people from different walks of life about the man and the music behind Prince and how he affected myself and other people out there. So keep an eye out for some of those. And thanks again for listening.